Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Heather Brown, one of the senior editors at the journal. For our September 2022 podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Laurent Sauvé, Professor of Paediatric Neuromuscular Diseases at the University of Oxford in the UK, and Dr Dora Marcati from the Department of Paediatrics, also at the University of Oxford. Their review in the September 2022 issue of The Lancet Neurology discusses emerging therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Welcome, Professor Sauvé and Dr Marcati. First of all, what is Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So Duchenne muscular dystrophy uh, is a devastating neuromuscular disease. It is an X-linked condition with an estimated prevalence of 1 in 3,500 to 1 in 5,000 alive male births. Uh, it's caused by mutations in the dystrophin gene, which result in the absence of functional dystrophin in the muscle cells. Now, dystrophin is a protein that provides a link between the cellular cytoskeleton and the extracellular matrix. In other words, it provides mechanical support to the cells. In the absence of dystrophin, the muscle cells are susceptible to mechanical stress, which results in chronic cycles of cell death and inflammation, leading to replacement of the cells by adipose or connective tissue. The disease affects both the skeletal muscles and the cardiac muscle, and boys affected experience severe muscle weakness, cardiomyopathy and respiratory issues. Recently, the involvement of the central nervous system is recognized in the pathology of the disease, manifested as a wide range of behavioral issues. The trajectory of the disease is quite variable depending on several factors, but mostly on the mutation causing the disease. And in most cases, affected patients show symptoms between the third and fifth year of life and lose ambulation around the seventh year of life. All of them have severe complications leading to premature death. Thank you. And what treatments are currently approved for use and why are more needed? Except for glucocorticoids, which are part of the standard care for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there are five more compounds conditionally approved either by the EMA or the FDA, and all of them are applicable to specific mutations. So the EMA-approved atalurin is a compound applicable to patients with a premature stop condom in their dystrophin gene. There are another four compounds, which are antisensolgonucleotides for exon skipping, and these are conditionally approved by the FDA. Overall, there is a difference in the approach of the EMA and the FDA. The EMA is more likely to grant approval based on functional outcomes, whereas the FDA has granted conditional approval based on surrogate endpoints uh, like the dystrophin production. Overall, more treatments uh, with a wider applicability are required for several reasons. First of all, the currently approved ones are applicable to some mutations only. But also, it is quite likely that the treatment of the disease will require the combination of two or even more approaches in the future. And what are the main categories of therapy that are currently in development? So the therapeutic approaches can be mechanistically divided into two main categories. One category are those approaches that aim to restore the function of dystrophin in the muscle cell. The other category includes those approaches that aim to reverse the pathology by targeting molecular pathways downstream of the absence of functional dystrophin. Now, the first category includes approaches applicable to all or a wide range of mutations, like the gene therapy, for example, mediated by adeno-associated virus, or the upregulation of proteins, which can compensate functionally in association with a dystrophin-associated complex, like the eutrophin, for example. 
The same category also includes approaches which can be applied in a mutation-specific way, like the stop-codon read-through or the exon skipping, uh, which in most cases is achieved with the use of fundis and oligonucleotides. The second big category is applicable to all mutations and potentially to other neuromuscular conditions with shared pathophysiology, like the Becker muscular dystrophy. In this category, glucocorticoids, which are part of the current standard care, are also included as an anti-inflammatory treatment. What sorts of positive signs of efficacy have these approaches had in clinical trials? Well, in the clinical trials, we need standardised measures. So uh, we use scale, scales that are validated, and but any of them has been really qualified by regulatory agencies. So the, the current scales that is mostly used in clinical trials is the NOSTAR, which is a, a scale that scored on 34, and it's mostly a um, kind of different task. We ask the patients to walk 10 meters, to stem from floor, and, you know, it's mostly applicable for ambulant patients, actually. Then we have the six-minute walking test, which is a test um, in which we simply ask the patients to walk as much as they can during six minutes. And we consider that 30 meters is clinically significant on this scale, because, of course, a change in a scale can be statistically significant, but is it clinically significant? Does it mean something for the patient in other, is in another story? So at the end of the day, what, what we could see in some trials is a small changes, but significant change in this scales. But the main question is for how long? Is it going to be for one year, for two years, for three years, forever? We actually don't know. And, and you know, the duration of trial is one year in general. And that's one of the main questions that, that is still pending, is the sustainability of the effect. And can you tell us about the safety concerns that have arisen? Well, there are several approaches, as described by, by Dr. Makati, but um, they all carry the, the, the different types of risk, right? We know the risk of steroids. It's it, actually even not a risk. It, it's, it's to be sure to have all you know, the side effects of, of the steroids. For the other approach, approaches so far, the, the, the exit skipping, uh, most of them are quite safe. Uh, we observe in some patients low thrombocytes or, or protein in the urines, but it's not so much a concern. The main concern is mostly related to the IV infusions for some of these drugs that can be just very, very burdensome. And then comes gene therapy. And gene therapy carries its own risk. So um, there are several programs and three of them had to be stopped at one point for safety concerns. What may happen? For instance, um, a reaction against the transgene, again, against the microdystrophin, for instance, um, that is produced. And this can be quite severe. It happens like 30 days after the, the infusion and, and patients may present with a very life-threatening condition. Then you can also have side effects that are related to an activation of the complement. And, and this happens much earlier on after the infusions and can also end up in a very concerning um, clinical condition um, that goes up to uh, thrombomicroangiopathy. So there are several safety concerns that are related to the different approaches. And for gene therapy, we understand better and better the different pathway by which um, an infusion of, of a AAV microdystrophin construct may lead sometimes to quite um, a severe adverse reaction.
And what are the other main challenges to development of new therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy? The main challenges in the clinical development of Duchenne muscular dystrophy arise uh, both from the rarity and the phenotypic variability of the disease. Now, the variability can be both a biologically occurring variability, but also a variability occurring from the differences in the care of these patients, which are, which differ substantially across the globe. Starting with the biological differences, different mutations uh, result in phenotypes of different severity, of course, but there are also other genetic uh, modifiers, which can also lead to a less severe phenotype. From the other side, The use of glucocorticoids is not standardized. The starting age and the regimes of glucocorticoids which are prescribed differ substantially across centers and countries. Altogether, the molecular background of the disease and the care received uh, by those patients are manifested as different trajectories in terms of both disease severity and progression. All these factors need to be taken very carefully into consideration when stratifying these patients in clinical trials. Additionally, the rarity of the disease and the fact that several approaches can be applicable in a mutation-specific fashion lead to several practical and ethical limitations when it comes to large-cohort placebo-controlled trials. Overall, the description of the different disease trajectories and the stratification of participants, participants in clinical trials based on them, as well as the use of data from previous placebo cohorts, are just some of the ways uh, we can use to tackle those barriers of clinical development. And there is, by the way, another issue that is related to the fact that our clinical trials are one year, right? Or 18 months, or best case scenario, 24 months. But the disease is a lifetime condition, right? So the issue is what can we reliably measure over a short-term period in a limited cohort of patients that can be indicative of a lifetime benefit into a larger cohort? And this is a real challenge. So today, the scales that we are using are still imperfect, which means that if I test a patient today and I test the very same patients tomorrow, I may have two points, three points sometimes difference that I could consider as clinically significant one year down the road. And that's a major concern is actually how can I be sure that something that I measure today in a short term period can really be extrapolated into a significant benefit. For instance, some years of ambulation, some years of survival, some years without non-invasive ventilation. We still have a lot of um, things to learn about it. And can any lessons be learned from drug development in Duchenne muscular dystrophy that might be useful in other neurological diseases? Well, I think we have learned a lot in Duchenne muscular dystrophy and, and um, it has been at the, at the very first line of trials in, in neuromuscular diseases. When, when I was a baby myologist like 15 years ago, we were sure that we will soon treat um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Unfortunately, we faced many, many issues. So what have we learned? We've learned that small phase one uncontrolled studies can be very easily biased. And that um, at the end of the day, if we want to be sure, we need double-blind randomized placebo-controlled studies, unless the effect is massive. But if it's not, we, we should pay attention that a phase one is a phase one. And that what we can learn from a phase one is mostly safety 
and pharmacokinetics. And then overinterpreting what we see in a phase one can be dangerous, dangerous for the community, dangerous for the patients, because patients may extrapolate to a, from a very small trials and a benefit that has been observed in a non-controlled trial, a benefit that they could expect from themselves, but um, they can be at a very different stage of the disease. So we, we need to be very cautious about that because what we've learned is that anything we say um, goes on the internet, go on, on, goes on the social media, um, and that the day after we received as physicians hundreds of emails asking for the new magic drug um, that is available, of course, for everybody. So we, we, we have learned that phase one are phase one. We've learned that we have a responsibility as investigators, as stakeholders, as a community um, about how we deliver the results of this very early phase trial. We've learned that to start treating a disease, we need to know it at first and we need natural history study. It's very impressive to see that the very large double-blind randomized placebo control study in Duchenne, which was the first Adelurin trial, was using a uh, an endpoint, which is the six-minute walking test, that was not validated before. It was validated after the trial, right? And we had no idea at that time that six-minute walking test in, increase um, up to the age of seven years and then decrease after what? We didn't know. We didn't know. So we were using um, an outcome for which we had not the singlest clue about how it normally changes over a period of time in these patients. So yes, if we want to, to, to treat a disease, if we want to conduct trials in a disease, we need to, to have a good understanding of the disease. So natural history study are extremely important. Um, and of course, from a patient's perspective, from an editor perspective, uh, they can um, appear not to be as fancy as a phase one um, gene therapy, but they are that so important if we really want to pave the way of successful clinical trial development. And finally, where do you see therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy heading in the next five or 10 years? Well, you can ask the question to the 15 years old myologist and to the six months old myologist, <laughs> um, and, and maybe you'll get different answers. From my own, I think that, that um, we, we will probably have one or two or maybe three drugs that are approved but with a minimal clinical benefit. And I believe that in the, in the five and 10 coming years, it's going to be a small steps, um, advance, which means that we will gain some uh, months with another drug on loss of ambulation. And then, um, a second drug will add a little bit, I don't know, maybe one year or two years of, of ambulation before, before the patients actually lose it. And, and we will gain um, drug by drugs, um, a little bit. And I'm unfortunately doubtful that at one point we'll have something that is completely disruptive and, and, and change completely the story. The second large trend that I anticipate is that it's a concept that we call the window of opportunity. When is it the best moment to treat these patients? And for some drugs, it's easy to understand. It's as soon as possible. If you have a drug that can decrease the damage, downstream of the absence of dystrophin, if we can give it at birth, it is better. But the, for, for drugs like gene therapy, in which you are, uh, you have the right for a one-shot 
and this one shot will be proportional to the weight of the patient, there is somewhere a sweet spot. I mean, not too early because you cannot give enough and not too late because the, the, the muscle tissues are damaged. So we will need first to get the best practice for the use of, of these drugs and second, um, for some of these drugs to initiate newborn screening and being able to deliver these drugs as soon as possible to maintain our patients in the best condition as possible and deliver the gene therapy in the best conditions when the patients are still a good muscle tissue, uh, but is young enough, but big enough to receive uh, the maximum dose that we can deliver. So that's how I foresee the, 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 the five to 10 coming years is first small steps and, and gaining six months, one year, two years, um, drug by drug on loss of ambulation. And then having better and better strategies on how to deliver these drugs. And for those that can be delivered at birth, we will have a stronger and stronger rationale to go for newborn screening. Well, Professor Seve and Dr. Marcati, thank you very much. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much, Heather. Thank you very much. You can read Professor Seve and Dr. Marcati's review online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Professor Survey and Dr. Marcati, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually get your podcasts.